if we're living in this other kind of um, moment where, let's say, in the not yet, the place that we see the world moving to um, is, is much more temporal and that, therefore, marketplaces and organizations and roles of people, careers, uh, curiosities are, are sort of very temporal, that they're, that they're contextual and temporal. And I think that the future, we can see the, the, the difficulty that our institutions and organizations have adjusting to that. We've spent, we've spent the better part of the last century taking surprises and spontaneity out of what we do. And now we're being asked to improvise and, and, and um, rethink and reinvent. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. In these conversations, we make sense of what's next. Join me, my co-hosts, and my guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hi, everyone. It's Tina Heikele, co-host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast with Simone Cicero. We're really grateful that you're listening to the show. Whether you've been us from the start or just discovered this podcast, we want to inform you that this is the last weekly episode for the season. We're going to take a small break and come back in October with a new lineup for your listeners. If you're interested in supporting us, please contact us at podcast at platformdesigntoolkit.com to explore ways to do so. Now, in this episode, we have two dear guests that have already been with us before and with whom we work very closely on various topics. Lisa Gansky, the eternal entrepreneur, great thinker, and our long-term advisor, and Bill Fisher, professor at IMD in Lausanne, with whom we've developed the very first Rendon Hay masterclass based on Hire's revolutionary organizational model. We also had the great pleasure to introduce these two for the first time in this occasion. Please also check out the previous episodes with Lisa Gansky and Bill Fisher. In this conversation, we wanted to pick their brains on the key thesis emerging from the research for our upcoming white paper such as acknowledging marketplace pervasiveness, seeing a systemic shift happening towards health, and redrawing the human development thesis to reverse the trend that machine development has outpaced human development. Following an initial framing, Bill and Lisa take turn in providing amazing reflections on where the world seems to be headed, both from a systems and a cultural perspective, and related to business ecosystems and innovation. With the pandemic providing the conditions for almost creating a laboratory for new models, Lisa ponders on the fact that our cultural nervous system cannot hold the amount of complexity and change we currently face, while Bill pinpoints that in order to make it in a rapidly changing world, the ability to look broader and move faster is key. And we end up debating value and temporality related to shareholder primacy in times where systemic health and communities are pointing us in quite different directions. In short, this was a jam-full closing episode that we really think you will enjoy. And also, if you want to meet, quote-unquote, Lisa and Bill live and have a chance to explore more, they will be co-hosting our big sense-making session on July 23rd, where we have invited all our previous podcast guests and others to extend the conversation. To get your free or premium spot, log on to www.platformdesigntoolkit.com and click on the tab Thinking to find the event page. Enjoy this extra-long episode with Lisa Gansky and Bill Fisher. Okay, so hello everyone. Uh, I'm here today uh, with my usual uh, co-host, Astina Hekila. Hello, hello. 
and uh, with two uh, of uh, the most important guests that we had in the podcast so far. Uh, one is uh, Lisa Gensky. Hi, I was taking a sip of tea. Hello. <laughs> and Bill uh, Fisher. Bill. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Hello. Thank you guys for, for coming up and, and for uh, joining us in this uh, episode that uh, is supposed to be a kind of uh, uh, recap and a kind of uh, moment of reflection of uh, on this uh, series that uh, we have been uh, producing this year. Um, so uh, as the listener may remember, uh, basically these uh, um, uh, podcast uh, series was pretty much related to a parallel uh, research project that we have been carrying on in the latest uh, few months. And uh, this uh, project was uh, focused on trying to understand essentially the new foundations of uh, platforms and ecosystems thinking. And in the process of uh, digging up these new foundations, I think uh, we uh, somehow unhurted uh, three, uh, sorry, four major uh, thesis that uh, that captured our attention and and somehow shaped our our thoughts and uh, I will give a quick recap to these theses so that they can provide a compass for our conversation today. So one uh, one key emerging thesis is the what we call uh, the thesis of uh, uh, pervasive marketplaces. So on one hand, I think from the interviews that we had and from the data that we have been capturing. Uh, through reports or other uh, sources, what we see is that the the pattern, let's say, the model of organizing uh, uh, human activities through uh, these marketplaces, uh, you know, marketplace-shaped uh, organizations, is an emerging uh, pattern that uh, is really gaining steam in the economy. I recall. Uh, 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 in a conversation that was actually in another podcast, uh, Rita McGrath, you know, uh, saying that uh, when you have this uh, plummeting transaction cost, you basically see you're going to see less uh, traditional firms and more uh, marketplace-based uh, firms. So that's for sure something that is happening. It's uh, also, um, I think, another interesting concept to uh, to recall here is uh, the, from the conversation we had with James Currier at the very start of this. Uh, podcast uh, um, adventure, let's say, where uh, uh, we, we, we basically um, acknowledge that the, the efficiencies that uh, uh, having an interface that organizes a market and, and it's able to, you know, generate all this amount of data that then we can use to optimize the market in turn, uh, it's really a, a no-brainer. You know? So basically, you know, the assumption is we're going to see that uh, playing out more and more in the economy. And uh, what we are actually seeing from a perspective of, uh, um, you know, real uh, outcomes on the market uh, is that we are seeing a flourishing of what normally uh, specialists define as uh, uh, managed marketplaces. Hmm? So marketplaces that uh, are, um, you know, where, where they... The organizing firm increasingly manages more of the relationships between the parties. You know? so, so, for example, it can, uh, in, you know, in, in, in the need of uh, producing a more consistent experience, uh, the, the, the organizing firm can uh, actually uh, manage more thoroughly and, and overlook, oversee uh, more uh, strongly, let's say, the experience and uh, even uh, end up in actually producing the supply side. Uh, in a more D2C uh, fashion. So, so that's for sure one aspect that is emerging. 
the other aspect is uh, what we normally call uh, the uh, transition between the user experience as a driver of the organizational development into uh, um, uh, systemic health. So I think uh, that largely came uh, accelerated by uh, the impact of the COVID uh, outbreak. And uh, many people realized really uh, how uh, fragile, let's say, you know, how brittle our uh, industrial systems are, our industrial supply chains are, and how much essentially health, um, it's an expression also of uh, um, systemic aspects, and also not just something that relates with you as an individual or your family, but also, you know, uh, the system that uh, to some extent uh, contains, you know, your, 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 your family, your community, your organization. So the environment or, or the cities or, or the governments or the, you know, the, this kind of uh, systemic integrations. And, and what we are seeing on this aspect is that uh, as uh, new risk factors emerge, uh, we probably can expect uh, uh, that, uh, you know, the priorities of organizing uh, will switch uh, more towards, uh, 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 I would say, more towards, uh, 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 you know, generating a system that is more resilient. Okay, so so the question, the, the other thesis that is emerging is, you know, our organizations are increasingly refocusing uh, not just on user experience, but also on becoming more resilient. So that's the second thesis. Uh, the third one, it's a thesis that is, uh, uh, you know, basically telling us uh, as uh, machines uh, become more powerful and as our data and technology infrastructure become more becomes more powerful, uh, the big issue that we see is that uh, uh, why the machine development thesis, as Indy Joar described it in, in the podcast we had, is still gaining, uh, you know, uh, exponential capability, exponential uh, power. Uh, the human development thesis is being, uh, to some extent, uh, uh, you know, uh, put into question. And, and we kind of have this situation now where technology is growing uh, in a way that we cannot control it anymore. And so, uh, you know, the humans need to be able to um, express their, their specific capabilities and their specific uh, potential in organizations. And this is also something that Martin Reeves have been talking about largely in the interview we had for the podcast. So, so human ingenuity, uh, human capability, reflecti- uh, reflective capabilities we need to find a way to, uh, uh, you know, basically embed them and and use them at best in the organizations we're going to design. So these are three major theses that are emerging. And there is a fourth one that is the last one and is the more overarching one. Uh, That is the the thesis that we need to reinvent uh, or uh, basically transcend and, and reinvent the way we organize, you know, how the shape of our organizations and uh, and uh, you, you know what we are seeing, and then I will stop and, and share it with you for the first comments. Uh, what we are seeing now is that essentially there is a, some kind of overlap uh, between these uh, flourishing uh, and pervasive uh, marketplace opportunities that are arising in the economy. So so a lot more contextual opportunities, more vertical opportunities to organize markets around uh, new uh, capabilities on the supply side and new demands on the demand side. Uh, this is requiring organizations to be much more 
uh, much uh, to be able to be nimble enough uh, to go and explore the market and create the entrepreneurial initiative to organize that small market. And uh, within time, some of these small markets can be integrated in, in bigger ones and they can grow and, and replicate, uh, you know, for example, you can replicate city by city or niche by niche and essentially create these uh, growth engines, okay? So so we kind of see a resonance between what we are seeing um, asked by the, 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 the market and the economy to the organization and what some of the organizations we are working with you know, for example, Hayek Group, that is this company that we have been talking about a lot during this podcast uh, with such a, an adaptive organizational model no? that is able to play uh, both at the level of the micro-enterprise that can start some venture on the market and at the level of platforms and integrated functional uh, uh, solutions. Um, uh, you know, basically, there is this kind of resonance between how the market behaves and how such pioneering organizations are restructuring them to be able to play at this multi-scale uh, variety of opportunities of, of uh, you know, stages. Uh, so here we have kind of a confirmation of, uh, that our uh, first results of the research are kind of going in the right direction. And maybe we have more open points instead on you know, really understanding how do you fit the new human development thesis into that? And to what extent really the infrastructural and the supply chains layers are going to restructure to fit with this more resilient and more health-driven uh, uh, you know, context that seems to be emerging as a new priority for uh, uh, human support systems. So, so that's more or less a big, 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 big picture of where we are. And... Uh, uh, I, I would first of all uh, maybe uh, leave it to you to to offer some first uh, uh, reflections. Yes, that was a big, 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 big uh, picture, as you said. Um, I have a, a number of comments and questions. Um, so regarding the, the the overall thesis, I think that um, from a marketplace perspective. I think one of the things that we've been playing with and exploring is this, you know, what I've been calling kind of spontaneous marketplaces that they're um, like, it's almost that the, the materials necessary to start, you know, start a fire, right. Start a marketplace are already in, in existence distributed in many parts of the world, or let's just say, you know, practically everywhere. So that, the, the ability for marketplaces to come to, to be sparked and they're not uh, what I'll, what I'll say are as persistent marketplaces, but they can kind of come together in an impromptu or spontaneous way. And then um, I think from listening to Jim's uh, Jim Carrier's discussion and, and further discussions that we've all had regarding data and the ability for data to give us um, insights and and provoke you know better more effective and efficient actions i think that's kind of the bridge to whether or not including you know mission and and desire on the part of the parties who have sparked this marketplace but whether there's a, tra a transfer of uh is a question really i may forget to raise my voice at the end but um you know we see a lot of this spontaneity or impromptu marketplaces do 
with data and visibility, do we see all of these actually um, manifesting as persistent marketplaces? Or is the condition, is the part of the life cycle where we're in that as we move from, uh, you know, like what I've called no more to, to not yet, when we move from a kind of worldview that's very stable, that we, where we've, you know, come from, that um, entities, organizations, brands, marketplaces, realities, currencies, practices sort of stick around for a really long period of time. If we're living in this other kind of um, moment where, let's say, in the not yet, the place that we see the world moving to um, is, is much more temporal and that therefore marketplaces and organizations and roles of people, careers, uh, curiosities are, are sort of very temporal, that they're, that they're contextual and temporal. Um, and that I think if we look through the lens of no more, if we look through the way that we've grown our, uh, ourselves, our careers and our communities and businesses, um, if we look through that lens, uh, the idea that something is temporal, especially, you know, short-lived, uh, we have kind of a negative view of that, uh, that that's not successful. But in, I'm just wondering, is part of what we're looking at here is this kind of um, uh, perpetual, what's perpetual is the process of learning and innovation such that the spontaneity of the marketplaces, the data, the learning um, may or may not um, transfer to something that looks, you know, quote, permanent or longer term, and that success is more on the side of the learning, not necessarily the side of the, the persistence. Um, and I think that for me, that idea also translates to how, you know, what, what shape organizations take. Um, because if we, if we think about, you know, for example, how the bolsa works, how the stock markets work. Um, and the way that we've been trained to think is that companies, for example, should be around forever. And, um, and so, you know, it's this, I'm just, so I'm putting out this notion also of, of in time and value in time and what's the value that we're capturing and is the effort worth the value? If, if we're looking from the lens of, um, of, you know, shareholders and currency, or if we're looking from the lens of stakeholders and community interdependence and learning, um, I think that, you know, we, we end up in a really different place. Um, so that was one whole kind of riff listening to you talk about, uh, in particular, the, the marketplaces and, um, and COVID, I think, is a, is a really interesting you know, blue dye effect. It's like, you, you know, we, we have this, uh, lots of things that were invisible or were suspect have become really bloody conspicuous because uh, they're breaking in front of our eyes or they're, you know, they're clearly broken, whereas before maybe people were trying to Velcro them together. Um, and so we have uh, with, with COVID, I think, uh, highlighted um, both vulnerabilities and value. And that in the no more, we see a lot of our institutional uh, biases and uh, inst institutions breaking or broken. Um, we see a lot of the way that we've asked questions uh, breaking. 
but between climate and uh, COVID and certainly inequality, but, um, you know, I, if we just take climate and COVID, I think we can make a really strong case that the only way that we can solve what we're being confronted with this century, uh, at least for now, but these are giant systemic challenges that we must solve in an interdependent way and with a very different kind of operating system than, than what we've um, institutionalized and learned before. And so I think that that's one aspect of, of COVID that in a way it gives us, um, it gives us a laboratory to test a lot of hypotheses because it, it's like um, the old song, if it doesn't work, if you can't make it, in, if you make it in New York, you can make it anywhere, you know, the very American song. Um, I think that, um, you know, in a way, COVID is testing us, if you can make it with COVID, then there's a good chance that your, that your model or your thinking will actually work in kind of the, the systemic challenges that are, uh, that are facing us and will continue uh, to do so. But I also think that it points to value that we have not really recognized or given its right place in the past that has to do with um, trust and safety. It has to do with uh, understanding who's critical in our, in our ability to live a safe and healthy and happy life, you know, supply chain, what people and things do we rely on, um, also kind of a level of empathy and respect that I think pervades, uh, you know, maybe the, the normal way that we were conducting our lives. And then the obvious ones of revaluing, you know, how we think about cities and the built environment and, and maybe what's emerging as a touchless economy. Um, and the last bit was just regarding human potential. Um, <laughs> I, I was, I was reminded of a, a really fabulous quote from um, E.O. Wilson. Well, I, yes, it's, it's a quote from E.O. Wilson, and I, I have to try to find it so I don't screw it up. But, um, but the, I might not get all the words right, but it's essentially that the, the real problem with humanity is uh, we, have a paleo, we have paleo emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And I, I think in the in the conversation that you alluded to, Indy, and just in terms of of uh, human development, I, I think that that intersection kind of frames it well. Um, and and Edward O. Wilson is a good one to do the framing. So, um, yeah, I love I love the bigness of what you've highlighted, and I'm excited to see, you know, how. One, how this continues to be a scaffolding for the next one to five years of the work that that Boundaryless does, but also, um, you know, what how people respond to the different pieces because each one of these could be each each one of these sections could be, you know, not only podcast series but also uh, a very invitational uh, white paper with other communities of people working on these topics. Definitely, definitely. Um, so I, I want to highlight some some of the things you said uh, before maybe leaving the floor to Bill for a further uh, uh, consideration. And, and um, But, you know, I just want to highlight that what you 
uh, you know, what you highlight and what you threw back into the conversation is it brings me to think about uh, this idea of uh, boundaries, uh, uh, both temporary boundaries. So uh, an excellent point is really that uh, of uh, having organizations that, uh, you know, in a world where sticking around is not so common anymore, probably need to deal uh, more with this idea of uh, being uh, in flux and so basically being more available to uh, endings, not just to, uh, you know, starts. So, so, so an organization can, you know, some, to some extent uh, needs to integrate more capability to, uh, you know, have branches of it that are born and then, and, and then maybe die and then, then, then maybe they evolve into something new. And uh, also this um, idea of uh, the um, uh, inadequacy of the institutions that we have. You know, you said that very clearly with a quote that you mentioned. Uh, you know, to some extent, I think that uh, we also, our, our productive environment, our organizations are, are a bit uh, uh, slowed down by the institutional uh, uh, architecture that we are all immersed in. Uh, you know, of this kind of self-replicating and uh, uh, to some extent conservative uh, uh, institutional systems like, you know, uh, states or, or, or global, uh, you know, trade uh, systems and, and global institutions like the UN. So, uh, and also I would say that the, the very idea of, uh, of the, uh, um, you know, the social compact between capital and labor and, and, you know, all the mechanisms of, uh, you know, public services and all the mechanisms of uh, uh, pensions and, and uh, this idea of centralized development and a specialized society where you just uh, work in corporates and then you go and, 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 and then you have your pension and, and you get your social services. And I think at this, it's really, uh, you know, uh, a resistance factor in basically transforming the productive environment into uh, different types of uh, organizations. So, so, to, so to close it before handing the, the reflection to Bill, I, I see that uh, we are really, into, um, you know, kind of uh, seeing that uh, there is a discontinuity possibly, uh, and uh, uh, we don't know yet how to manage, uh, uh, you know, basically we don't have the society and we don't have the markets ready to manage discontinuities. We kind of have an institutional agreement and an economy that is much more about continuity, as you said. And so we don't have the, the structures needed to deal with that, both at an organizational level, but also I think at the societal, societal and institutional level. Uh, Bill, I would love to, to know, to, unless Lisa, you want to add something on that? No, I, I mean, the only thing I was going to say is I don't think we have the central nervous system to deal with it either as human beings, the way that we've been, you know, educated and, and our expectations. Mm -hmm. I think culturally, you know, as I should say, our cultural nervous system doesn't support that. And, um, you know, if you look at indigenous communities or other examples, people contribute and they are taken care of and then there's success to find in other ways, right? But I think... Um, when we're looking at this extraction of value as a corporation and the idea of, you know, jobs and all, all the things that go with all that, that's very tied up in this, you know, 20th century idea. Um, yeah, we're, we're, you're right that there's a discontinuity and, and how we move from one to the other is, is very much, um, you know, in, in the, 
objects are closer than they appear kind of mirror, right? So <laughs> I think I'm really interested to, to hear what Bill has to say. But thank you, Simona. That was a good summary. Yeah, I, I thought not only was it a good summary, but Lisa, you did an amazing job of also wrapping up the um, or, or providing an overview of what uh, Simona started out with. Um, you know, if you think about the 20th century, the 20th century was uh, very much an uh, an era of um, slow S curves, long, um, lush middles in S curves that mark industry change. And it was there that, you know, a lot of continuity was built into what we think about as today as modern management. So my, when I reflect on what we think about as modern management, so much of it is about um, harvesting um, the, the, the outcomes of occasional innovation rather than adopting um, a philosophy of continuous change. And I think that if you think, if you take COVID-19 as a metaphor for the sorts of changes we'll likely see in the future, the, you know, William Gibson thesis that the future is already here. Well, I think it is. I think it's COVID. And I think that the future, we can see the, the, the difficulty that our institutions and organizations have adjusting to that. We've spent, we've spent the better part of the last century taking surprises and spontaneity out of what we do. And now we're being asked to improvise and, and, and um, rethink and reinvent. And we don't have the tools for that. We've never invested in the tools for that. And so I think that there's a, you know, a real disconnect between what's going to happen over, oh, what's going to happen over the next couple of decades and our ability as a managerial class, if you will, to adjust to that. And I think that that's, that, that, that that's kind of wor worrisome. Um, I, I think that the marketplace mechanism that Simona talked about is seeing repeatedly over the last uh, year or so of research and interviews and the like is one response to this need for a faster cadence of work and, um, and, and, and more experimental approaches to the way we go, go about things. And so the temporary nature of so many of these um, marketplace uh, connections, if you will, um, it, it, I think reflects the fact that we need to do things fast and we need to do things we've never done before. And so we need to test ideas and try things out. Um, what, what I think is interesting is that some of the ecosystems that we've been looking at are efforts to try to um, um, build organizations around that, that use spontaneity as an advantage that, that are trying to um, uh, make temporariness a, um, you know, a primary way of, of, of guiding organizations rather than trying to build something that lasts. When I was in graduate school 100 years ago, uh, Warren Bennis wrote a book about the temporary society. Turns out he was right. I mean, the things he predicted then in the way in which organizations would, would conduct their business and the way in which managers would have to respond are very much in line with what we're beginning to see today. And so in some ways, the future was already here um, as he saw it. Um, I think for me, the most interesting question about this is, what does it mean for human development to be able to function 
in these sorts of environments. And I think that we really need to not only rethink how we organize the, 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 the organizations of which we are part, but we need to rethink um, how we conduct the leadership roles within these organizations. And I think that what we've seen in the COVID crisis is a real failure of leadership, almost on a global scale, with a couple of exceptions, but almost on a global scale where, where the old institutions and the old expertise and the old leadership styles have just failed to respond. At best, they've hesitated. You know, at worst, they've probably been responsible for the death of tens of thousands of people, if not more. So, so I think that if that's not a wake-up call to the sorts of changes we have to make, um, we'll never have one quite that vivid or quite that loud. So let me, I'm going to stop at this point and, um, and, and see what you think. Well, uh, one one thing that uh, that uh, makes me reflect on what you both said uh, is trying to cite the this um, you know I would say the the, the enormity of uh, of uh, this topic. You know? so how gigantic uh, does it look like uh, the the amount of change that we can expect in the coming decade in terms of uh, the firm, not the organization as we know it. Uh, so, and sometimes I also feel like, uh, um, you know, maybe on the other hand, I also feel like maybe it's not the that's not the case. So maybe uh, we are over uh, projecting some of the strengths on on the expectations of change that uh, uh, that we have uh, towards the corporate or the firm or more in general. No, I'm, I'm more inclined to think that uh, we are not exaggerating, but. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, I play the devil's advocate with my, my thoughts and, and I say, okay, maybe I'm really, um, you know, making it bigger uh, uh, than it is for real. So so that that's one, one so another reflection that I would like to share with you both. You know? So to what extent uh, we can really imagine what is coming up and how the shape of the firm and the leadership roles are going to change? Because... Uh, if I think about leadership, I think about, for example, this idea of a leadership that is much more embodied, you know, much more in present in the, uh, you know, in creating entrepreneurship and, and creating real stuff, not maybe the traditional leadership that we may think about in the entrenched bureaucracy of the industrial organization. And I also think about the new constituents. So another, maybe a question for you both uh, is, uh, are we really, you know, should we really expect that organizing is going to move away from the corporation and then moving back into new constituents such as, I don't know, municipalities, cities, uh, you know, communities, uh, and, and that, that these constituents can really take over larger parts of uh, this economy and, and some extent also the economy of essentials that it seems like it's regaining priority uh, in the thoughts of, uh, of our societies in the wake of the COVID and other uh, gigantic systemic problems that we, that we see. <laughs> Those are great questions. Um, the, you know, I, when you were talking, Simone, I, I had this thought of, um, I use the metaphor of a lens a lot because I'm addicted to photography and have been, you know, most of my life. And when you were talking, I was thinking in a way, like, okay, are, are, are we exaggerating? Is, does it just feel really big? Um, and I, I think that I was thinking about things like when you're standing in front of the Alps or, um, 
you know, the Taj Mahal or, um, you know, Yosemite, the Grand Canyon, any, you know, you, you, there's no way, like people will often say this, the sentence of, um, I just have to be here because it, I can't really capture what, what it is. It's too, it's, it's, it's beyond the, the, the ability to capture this in a, in a two dimensional thing inside the frame. Right. And, and what I would say is that that's how I feel about where we are, that the, 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 the tools that we're using, the camera, the lens, the frame is we keep trying to shove it into the old, you know, no more model. We keep trying to, and and I think that that's a mechanism, not, not only because, um, you know, that's where our, our society is just designed around those things for, for now. Uh, but also just, it's a, it's kind of a calming thing. It's a, it's a way that we've also been trained and educated to, to learn as you, you know, this is like that. Um, so I just, I think that there's a, a, an important piece here, which has to do with shifting from, you know, and as Bill noted, like the 20th century is built on a very Cartesian notion. It's, it's man conquers nature, right? It's, it's, you know, I'm going to whip you into shape. I'm going to, I'm going to, um, shape nature and shape, make things, whether it's, you know, mining or exploration, exploitation, extraction, scaling of organizations and manufacturing, the military itself, all of those models are very much like, you know, I'm going to create this, this man-made structure and nature will like, you know, forests don't have trees planted in lines, uh, you know, as, as my friend Vinay always says, you know, it's, that's a human thing driven by this notion of factories and pr- productivity and, and all of that, you know, um, is, is a very sort of Frederick Descartes, you know, mentality. And I just think we, we have to model ourselves. And, and I agree, um, with Bill that COVID is just like, it's been given, it's a gift to us. It's horrifying and it's, it disrupted everyone's life and, and crushed and created tragedy in, in some. Um, but, but I think it's far from over and it's also, we're just, we're, we, we have to kind of think about COVID and, and it being kind of a um, coming attractions to our future, not a one-off. And that we really are going to use that as like our personal trainer for getting ourselves uh, as a as a community, as a society, um, as a humanity, you know, in shape for recognizing that nature bats last, but also that you know we're all connected. And and how are we going to deal with this in you know that's outside the scope of you know what my um, what my uh, earnings per share are this quarter. Or, you know, whether I get reelected or, or any of those sorts of things. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's, it's calling on us as humans to, to reinvent a, a kind of a discourse of how we are going to survive and, you know, hopefully live well, but not just survive together on this planet. Um, and it's, I don't think that we're underestimating. I, the other thing, uh, the other quote I saw recently, somebody put up, um, I don't recall who it was on, on Twitter a month or so ago was a Lenin quote that was, um, 
something like, you know, we have decades where nothing happens and then we have weeks where decades happen. Um, and, and that's very much how I feel. Um, and I also I think it was a quote, a quote from Lenin. To, yeah, just, that's what uh, I said. <laughs> yeah, it is. Exactly. And I, you know, I have one secret thing also, which is that, um, you know, I've spent most of my life um, being an entrepreneur, which I, 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 for me is like observing systems and failure and then seeing that as, as an opportunity to create change that, you know, for me had a, a social aspect uh, to it as well. Um, but <laughs> as much as I like change, you know, the amount, the intensity and the pervasiveness and the magnitude of this change is, reminds me of uh, also when I originally thought I was going to be a scientist and a doctor and things like that. And a friend of mine who was a surgeon used to, whenever he would tell me stories, would say, um, you know, oh, this patient went crazy and they made a big fuss about this or that. But, you know, it's only minor surgery. And then like three years later, Michael says to me, you know, oh, he's all freaked out. He has to have this, uh, you know, thing and he's really upset and it's a surgical procedure. And so I leaned into him and I said, you know, don't worry, it's only minor surgery. And he reaches down, he's a really big guy, and he reaches down and grabs me by the collar and goes, screw you, Gansky, minor surgery is when we do it to somebody else. And um, a little bit that's how I feel about this. Like change was cool to, to work on and talk about and think about and, and help, you know, hopefully provoke in certain times. But the magnitude of this is, is really calling on all of us in a way that is massive and urgent and, and, and frightening. Like it's exciting and frightening all at once. So, yeah, get what you ask for <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, I'm going to jump in before I'm sure Bill also has reflections on, on this. But I'm... Um, I was thinking when you when you were talking, you know, we, it's quite clear that we live in some sort of chaotic moment, and it's not really clear who is going to be able to settle that, like uh, to raise to the challenge. And then we've been talking to, for instance, uh, um, recalling the episode that we recorded with Martin Reeves, uh, and he was talking about this uh, ingenuity of humans and how rather than machines, we, we have this ability to imagine things and to think counterfactually. And, and that sort of provides us with a strength in the current moment, I would say, compared to uh, machines or industrial uh, uh, processes and, and things like that. So what can we imagine is coming out of that in terms of organizations then? Because it's clear that the incumbents and uh, the, the big... Um, bureaucratic organizations are, are struggling probably the most in many in a, in a lot of senses um, so what what is going to come out in terms of spaces within organizations but also in between probably that allows for people to to use this this capacity to imagine something new and to and to co-create to some extent and uh, and I guess that's where with that reflection I wanted to hand over okay so um so this is something I, I'm I, really interested in because I think I have a unique opportunity to sort of look at two aspects of it. On, on the one hand, I'm part of a startup that is using um, 
AI and machine learning to um, to invent um, patentable inventions on de- on demand. I mean, um, it, we've just moved from a business model of every two weeks to one where we're putting creating software as a service so that the clients can actually control the pace of invention um, at their desks. And we've been remarkably successful with some of the most important inventing companies in the world. And and the reason we've been successful is because invention is all about um, breadth, breadth of, 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 of uh, perspective and speed. And, and if we can combine the two by augmenting human intelligence with machine uh, capabilities, then we can move faster than, than any multi-functional um, team that could be put together um, in the same period of time. So, so that's been really interesting to watch that struggle. A- at the same time, Simona and I, as you know, have been working on the Hire project. And what Hire is doing, I think, is building ecosystems to be able to look broader and move faster than a traditional bureaucratic, classically structured organization be able to do. So, you know, here you have, on the one hand, you have a very sophisticated machine-enabled, big data-enabled process. And on the other hand, you have um, a lot of bets on spontaneous, serendipitous collisions of of, of people and ideas, uh, much more more human-oriented on the higher side. And yet they're both trying to do the same thing, and and I would suggest for roughly the same reasons. Um, so I don't think it's either or. I think there are ways of doing it, but but you know I think what Lisa said. I, incidentally, I love Lisa's um, paradigm of no more and not yet because I think for me it captures uh, emotionally the sorts of ways in which we think about moving from the present to the future. And um, um, and I think that when she talks about that, what she says is most of the things that we do today are extensions of the no more, of, of technologies and techniques and processes that we've developed in, in, a, in the world of the past, a very different world from what we're heading into. And I think she's right. And, and I think that what I see in, in, the, in the, the two organizations that I talk about is really attempts to think differently. So to break out of the old molds, they're still pursuing the same goal of invention, which is, you know, novelty and speed. Um, but they're trying to accomplish it in very different, non-traditional ways. And um, both of the organizations have struggled um, in the beginnings, at least, to get credibility because what they've been been trying to do is so different. But what I think they 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 rep, represent is ambitious attempts to try to experiment with organizational design for the future, um, and in both cases they are well certainly in Hire's case they are asking everybody to become part of the future. They're not leaving some people behind to to harvest the cash flows of the no more, but they're sort of encouraging everybody in the organization to uh, move into the future because if they develop new ways of working in the future, it'll be good for everybody. So, so for me, there are, there are examples of this, of people trying to break out from the inertia that the no more holds over us all. 
And whether they'll be successful or not remains to be seen. But at least there's some there, there's some hope that we'll have some models to work with going forward. I have a question, um, Bill. That was I, that was great. I, I didn't actually even know about your AI company, so that's that's really interesting. And I want to talk to you about that. Uh, maybe not here. <laughs> we'll run out of time, and Simone yes, will pull the plug on me. But. Um, a question for you is just with respect to hire, and I've you know talked to Simona and read the things that have come out of your work there uh, that are available to, to read. Um, the question I have is is like in the I'm familiar with the notion of ecosystem collisions and expansion and acceleration and you know like using the the idea of a frame that you you know the the, le- the more diversity, the more learning, right? And, and, and so the question I have there, uh, and that's true for AI and f- for the, you know, for, for the collision method of ecosystem curation or, or wildness, uh, depending on what, what flavor of farming you're, you're doing. Um, but how, how, does, how confident are you and how confident is higher that the the ecosystem method alone uh, can can be developed or is in fact in pr- already being managed in a way that um, is expansive enough to meet the challenges of what we're seeing in the world. So, so I can only speak for the higher example. And Simona, you you know so much about this. You should jump in as well. Um, I, I think very. I think it still remains to be seen exactly how this turns out. I think the organization has been sufficiently successful to date to continue the experiment on a large scale. And at some point, I think they hope to move everybody in the organization so that at the moment 80,000 people into these types of um, um, ecosystem-facing micro-enterprise market um, uh, you know, but, but also wildness and collisions. You're absolutely right. I think it's almost Brownian motion taking place outside of the boundaries of the organization. And then they have a system of sh- organizational shock absorbers to mediate that, 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 that type of, of, you know, craziness outside of uh, the, the more measured pace of life in the organization. But what I think is happening is I think they realize that they have no choice, that um, particularly in the smart home of the future, that hyper, customers living in a world of hyper-connectivity are going to want more and more and more of what the organizational providers of their experience can give them. And in most cases, the organizational providers are ill-equipped to do that. They've never written recipes. They've never hired written cookbooks. They've never tended organic farms. But yet, yet that's the part of the customer experience that's most vivid in the customer's life is their ability to check the provenance of the, um, the, the organic produce that they're buying or to pair um, uh, wines that they're buying with, uh, with the foods that they're cooking. Uh, so, so the organization is selling an experience that's fundamentally different than they used to, and not only fundamentally different than they used to, but, but because they used to sell really a big box that kept food cold. Um, now, they're also engaging in 
what, what I would call, you know, collateral learning. They're both learning at the same time so that the customer's experience is changing so fast and their expectations are changing so fast that there's no way that they believe, I think, that they could keep up. So they, they, they have to, they have to, they have to become radically open in order to be able to meet the, the quest for new ideas that the customer seems to be looking for and, um, and, and the pace at which they're doing this. And what, what, one of the things that's happened, I think, as, and I don't think this was intentional, but they have now stretched their definition of the businesses that they're in from washing machines to, 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 to laundry. So they're doing all sorts of things within the clothing of wearable products um, that they would have never thought about in the past, but the customer would never have looked to them for answers either. So I guess what I'm saying is um, I feel like Hire was quick to recognize that our world is changing. We're unprepared. We need to really radically change the way we, we, we get ideas. And once they did that, they had to make it worthwhile for these new partners, these new quote unquote ecosystem partners that they're um, relying on because those partners are major contributors to the value creation process. So, and so are the customers. So, so the whole, the whole um, balance sheet between, you know, who is creating what and who is consuming what is now changed. And, and I think what Hire is trying to do experimentally at the moment is try to create an organization that meets that, those changes in a fast and effective fashion. Does that, does that respond to your, that was a long response. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I can probably add a couple more thoughts than, than, than uh, on, on this higher topic, because I think it's not a question of higher that is interesting here, or not just the question of higher, but it's more the question of the corporate model, I would say. You know? So, so uh, Lisa, in, in your question, I think you, I can, I can see that, uh, you know, you are kind of um, pointing that uh, the, the, the changes that are probably going to happen or needed are so staggering that uh, they may make the the corporate model, uh, you know, uh, uh, on its own, uh, uh, inadequate to uh, deal with those changes. Uh, and um, but you know what I feel, uh, um, what I feel inspiring and interesting about Hire is that uh, uh, to some extent, Hire has integrated. Uh, much more than its organizational model, much more than this idea of the networked organization or on IoT or, or smart home or whatever. But the, if there is one idea that is deeply entrenched and deeply integrated in, in the idea of organizing that higher is promoting, is the idea of change. So, so is, is the idea that everything changes continuously. And it was fascinating for me to to listen to Jean Grumin uh, giving this presentation in January last year and saying, you know. Uh, we either we evolve or, or we become a museum exhibit. Okay, so so it's is basically pointing out that the organization is on a track to continuous evolution, continuous change. And uh, in a private meeting, once he said to me, "You know, maybe uh, uh, companies will exist in the future, but organizations won't." Okay, so so there is this idea of the organization as a as a uh, integrating artifacts like like we are using to 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 deal with uh, as something that may uh, so radically change in the future that it could not exist 
so, so the question is really about uh, looking at uh, uh, thinking about the corporation as a, as a self-fulfilling prophecy of uh, mechanized world or uh, looking at the corporation as an accident of history. Uh, and it's really important and interesting to look at, in my point of view, uh, uh, also to the uh, Taoist uh, roots of higher, no? because essentially this also helps us to frame this uh, from a cultural and philosophical perspective. Uh, and uh, w- when I think about uh, the question that uh, that I asked to Jiang uh, um, Rumin in a recent interview when I said, you know, but what is the purpose of this organization at the end of the day? Because uh, you always talk about user experience, you always talk about, uh, you know, th- th- this kind of products and electronics, but uh, how does this organization respond to acknowledging, uh, you know, the climate crisis, for example, or the social issues that, uh, that we are experiencing all over the world? And, uh, and uh, when basically, when he answered to this question, he pointed out to a very a basic principles of the uh, Taoist philosophy. He quoted Lao Tzu, basically, and, and he quoted Lao Tzu in this idea of uh, having an organization that is like water. Uh, so as maybe some of you know, the listeners uh, in the Taoist tradition, no, there is this idea of water as a, as a universal, um, you know, kind of very important uh, force. And, and, uh, and, you know, to be like water, to some extent, is to be uh, stronger than everything, you know, is to be able to cope with everything, is to be able to be functional to everything and at the same time to be, uh, you know, selfless, as uh, Jean Grumin said. So, so, uh, so I think this is really, really an interesting, uh, an interesting way to look at the cooperation, uh, not as a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I'm quoting here something that I've heard from, from Bonita Roy uh, a couple of weeks ago in a podcast when she said basically that this, the technologies that we use, for example, to solve our complex problems uh, uh, kind of end up in generating these problems. Uh, if you think about, I think she was doing the example of uh, talking about the COVID, she was doing this example of uh, the way we manage viruses is uh, to some extent something that ends up in creating these incidents and, and possibly spreading these pandemics around, you know, because we, we kind of play with viruses in labs and so on. So that's the point that maybe I can for, I can throw back to, to Bill that I, I know that you want to add something. Uh, so, so it looks like to me that higher is, especially in one thing, is at looking at the corporation as something that is subject to change. It's not necessarily a self-fulfilling prophecy of a Cartesian and mechanicistic way uh, to look at, at society and, and the human experience more in general. So I, I would like to just jump in um, with three points just to clarify um, so, something I said earlier. The, the, the first is that um, one of the things that I'm struck by at higher, I think, the, I think that the idea that change is continuous is an extraordinary advantage because I think people come to work not afraid of what's going to happen today, but but really looking forward to what sort of change they they can be part of, and um, I, it, I I was all, I've always been struck by the fact that when you walk through the factory, often you'll see these posters of very because um, I I live and die by S curves, so I always see the S curves, but they're all about how they're going to jump to the next curve. And these are being drawn by people on the shop floor. So my sense is that there's a one of the things that makes higher special is they really pay attention to their culture. Their culture is not the byproduct 
of other choices. Their culture is a primary choice, and they are constantly driving that culture to be more innovative and, and, and more entrepreneurial. Um, the, the, the second thing is, is that um, I think that we're seeing um, ecosystem identification. When you talk to people in the ecosystems, when you talk to higher people who are involved in ecosystems, it's pretty clear that increasingly their primary identification is with the ecosystem. So what does that mean for the organization? If, if, your, if your star employees identify with their external relationships rather than with the internal relationships, which we know works in universities, but is this, is this a different model for the organization or, what, or, what we see, or is it that the boundaries of the organization are beginning to fade and ultimately um, the future will belong, the, the primary asset will be the, the, the relationships, the, the capacity to create an innovation because of the relationships rather than the customer relationship. And I think Simona said that earlier in the, in, in the podcast where he saw a change in the orientation of the firm from user experience towards something else. And I think this is part of what we're seeing. And then the third thing is, Lisa, you, you, you said with reference to the what if, um, you, you said, could it be that new, new that, that leadership of organizations will, will revert to communities or, or, or will change from the old shareholder model that's governed the last couple of hundred years? And I think that that might, in fact, be the case, although the communities might not necessarily be physical or local, but they might be communities that are born out of ecosystem partnerships, which are, which are temporary to begin with, but as you repeat the experience, become more trustful. And here I'm thinking I've been doing some work with the municipality of Copenhagen and their intentions to um, to, to, to create an e-sports ecosystem in Copenhagen and Skåne. And, um, and, and there were always players in this region, but they didn't think of themselves as being connected in any way. And then a connection occurred because of a, a, an activist, um, um, a, a woman who saw the connections, and now, in fact, they're stronger together than they were alone. And I think that that's a very interesting example of where people begin to have dual allegiances, one to their employer, but one to the relationships. And maybe that'll be a change we see in the what if. So it's like you have these two directions, you know, and then I leave it to, to you guys to maybe try to wrap up your, our ideas as a, as a, towards a, a, a conclusion. But essentially, uh, like you, Bill, you're saying, it's like we have two directions of organizing. You know? We are much more used to this vertical direction. And now there is some horizontal direction of organizing that is opening, you know, like uh, in the space between organizations, uh, in, between, uh, in the spaces between entrepreneurs, in, in the space between uh, users and, and, and organizations themselves. So more like a, in a cross boundary. So it's really the, the concept of boundary is really being uh, um, questioned, uh, apparently. Uh, that, that's the, yes, that's my, that's the, you know, maybe I've been hanging around with you too long, but, but, but that's the way I'm beginning to see the higher ecosystem uh, existence. And, and that has real practical complications, right? Because, for example, um, 
how do you brand a multi-partner customer experience that where each partner feels like they have a right to recognition and um, and where you're going to uh, distribute the value captured among the partners based on that contribution. I think it changes the way they think about where their primary allegiance is. Yeah, and also, uh, you know, and this I offer it maybe to, to Lisa for a further uh, reflection. Uh, I, when I spoke with uh, two weeks ago, uh, a few weeks ago, I was spoke, speaking with John, John Bunch that our listener, uh, listeners have enjoyed on the podcast. Uh, from Zappos, and uh, and uh, we were really excited, especially talking about this, you know, so to say, you know, I asked, how do you guys uh, basically define the constraint for the entrepreneurs inside the organization to create new ventures? And and they refer to this triangle where there are the values of the organization, the brand, uh, so basically the mission of the organization, serving customers' uh, excellence, and uh, being prof- uh, essentially being sustainable. So being profitable, if you if you if you will, so so these three things actually uh, set the constraint for for the organization uh, for being part of the organization. So so in the future, the question is maybe it's much more about setting constraints and stories than actually setting real uh, corporate organizations and and well uh, defined boundaries around uh, the entrepreneurial uh, the entrepreneurial process. Yeah, so that was amazing, guys. Thanks for that. I think that the, the one com- one question, and, and it's probably something to keep, maybe you know, but maybe it's uh, something to keep looking at, is just in the in the world being, like, I, I'm just curious about hires, hiring process or how they find people that are, that are, that break the, the mold or don't, you know, so for example, uh, people tend to hire people that fit into a culture as opposed to hiring people that break a culture. And there's parts of a culture, like when you talk, when you talk about the culture, I think you're, you're uh, referring to, and when I talk about it typically as well, so I'm trying to think of another word, but is like the, the, the environment and the values that, that are fundamental to growing the kind of uh, institute, you know, institutional practices, but more outcomes and people that we want to um, engender. And so it's the substrate, it's the, you know, foundational declarative space. Um, But the question I have is like, if it's this, there's a complexity always with, with humans, uh, which is basically to say that, you know, uh, this notion of empathy or, or rejecting, like there's some things that I, I think I'm a very open person, but even some positions or ideas can, can disgust me or provoke me to, to a, a bad feeling or, or a judgment, you know? And, um, and so some of those things may, may be acceptable inside of the culture and some of those things may not. And there's this place in which you know, if you take the extreme of the ecosystem, like if you're um, a, a an American company or a European company or a, a Chinese company, that that's the that like this. In this case, we have the Taoist um, uh, philosoph- philosophy. That's the fundamental frame for, for what where the organization can go, and that's probably you know water metaphor aside, a much more fluid frame than 
than one that comes from, um, you, you know, a more uh, Anglo orientation with, um, with, a, with a very Cartesian kind of sense or, or uh, I should say Occidental. But in any case, the point being that uh, the question I had that we can continue in another moment is really just do the, do the ecosystems, at what point do the ecosystems rub up against the culture and that your need to continue to diversify the kinds of questions and people who are part of the, the game are also um, you know, creating a problem or, or provoking a change uh, or forcing you to reify the, the declaratives you had around the, the core principles culturally. And so that was like a learning, kind of just a learning question, because in the AI scenario, it's, it's, a, it's um, in some ways more easy to control or to, to see when you're at that intersection and to make a deliberate decision. Um, but in an organization with humans, uh, you know, two or three layers away or two or three, not even layers, but, you know, cascading groups or teams away, it's, it's, it may be harder. So that was kind of more of a, a just a trying to understand the edge of, of the higher model. Um, but with respect to what we've really been talking about, and I know we, we want to kind of wrap up, uh, um, I, I do think that, you know, Bill's example with Copenhagen, I've actually worked, I love working with people there and the city in particular. Um, and I think that they are looking at kind of models uh, that, both physical models and examples in the city in terms of infrastructure um, that allow for like their ski slope and things that, that allow for, you know, introducing circularity and making things conspicuously look and feel that they're, they're closer to nature and therefore they're building something that is going to uh, embrace and restore pathological change as a, as a good thing. Um, and so that, you know, for me, I think one of the, one of the fundamental wrap up pieces is to say that, you know, I think that we are boundaryless, um, that that's our capability from a human potential perspective and that we've overlaid fictions on top of that. And that, that fictional kind of overlay for several centuries or, or, or so has really, let's say, served us from the standpoint of the other fiction, the economy, um, but probably hasn't served us from the nonfiction, um, you know, biological, natural environment. Um, and so this notion that, you know, from a human potential standpoint, we can have our organizations, our teams, and the way that we organize for creating value and um, supporting societies and living life is more in the sort of sponta spontaneity, self-organizing, adaptive model um, that seems very clear. And I think we, we have a, many examples and hopefully we'll be um, provoking and learning many more. Um, related to that, I think that there's some combination in listening to you talk about hire as well is that from the 20th to the 21st century, there's this shift in the way that we think about culture for um, communities, I would say, as well as for companies or other kinds of organizations, is this coexistence 
uh, or this self, uh, like a virtuous cycle of success, peace, and uncertainty um, as being connected because we've thus far, uh, at least in, for me in this body, in this life, have been organized around, um, you know, peace and success are, are, have been fictionally anchored in certainty. Um, and then the third thing, and again, is just I'll, I'll say I think that we need to um, explore time and temporality with respect to value, capture, creation, and stakeholders. Um, because, again, in the 20th century model, and especially if you're looking at things like uh, more fictions like publicly traded companies, there's this provocation every 90 days and a, a whole set of metrics that um, reveal and conceal things uh, based on, you know, what is valued. And so um, that creates, a, you know, it creates fictional value, but it also has created a lot of other consequences uh, in some cases, including distrust and weakens the system instead of strengthens it. So I'm, I think that just in terms of thinking about, in what period of time, you know, are we, des we're designing this in for, for the outcomes in what period of time? And like, um, well, I remember when, when I, the first time I was in Puglia, the, the, um, there's a lot of really awesome olive trees there. Uh, I think there was like a million that were two, more than 2000 years old. And, uh, I remember having a conversation with one of the, the gentlemen who, uh, owns a farm there. And he was saying that the grove, and he was saying that the average, uh, well, the peak production for oil and the quality of oil is somewhere between 400 and 600 years. And, and I, and that just really stuck with me because I thought that that's that whole sort of, you're, you're, you're planting it, not for you. You're planting it, not even for your grandchildren. You're planting it for for something that is this confidence and this hope and trust that uh, there'll be a future that that will continue, and it it sort of um, creates this this trajectory um, and this kind of um, energy towards the uh, a, a time frame that is beyond where your you or anyone you know is going to uh, you know reap something that you consider to be a benefit, and I, I think that that in in sort of for me, is one of the fundamental aspects of what needs to shift. Bill, I, I, I knew that you wanted to add something at some point. Yes, I just wanted to, um, I, just for Lisa's, in response to Lisa's question, I wanted to mention that, you know, Hire has been in the process of doing this. Uh, it's been on this transformation journey for more than 35 years. So over that period of time, the people who have absolutely hated this have left and They've built a, a, an employment brand that's all about taking chances, continuous change, and entrepreneurship. So, you know, they've given themselves a huge advantage by being consistent in changing. And, um, and, and that has served them well in the way in which their labor has, um, ha, has the, the labor system has, the talent that they've uh, assembled. And then I think that the worst mistake they could make is to hire people who want to be entrepreneurs and put them in a classical organizational structure. So they were smart enough to say, if we're going to hire entrepreneurs, we better 
change our organizational structure or else we're going to have angry entrepreneurs. And that's probably not what we, what we want. So I think that was a, you know, I think so behind, behind the facade of big dreams and daring, you know, organizational structures, there's a lot of details and the details tend to serve to make it easier to do the sorts of changes that they want to, that, that, that they want to, um, have happened. And I think one of those big changes is that the culture, so talent acquisition is now done at the microenterprise level. So it's the 10 or so people who are together in a microenterprise who do the hiring. So pretty much the culture of the microenterprise is determined by the inhabitants. And I would imagine that they are closer in to, over time to their external partners than they might be to the higher environment. So one of the roles of the platforms in hire is to absorb that, that that cultural difference and interpret the messages into the more orderly organization, I, I think, and, and the other direction as well. But I think the organization has been put together to make it easy to partner with outsiders and and, and share ideas and then figure out how to bring that into the, the organization a, a, as a whole. Um, but your question about at what point do the, do, the, do the ecosystems rub up against the culture of the organization, that's, that's where I think this series of shock absorbers is important. And, and, and you're going to have it, and you, somehow you have to mediate it. Um, so I hope that, 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 that helps. If I'm going to provide, um, so in the spirit of a wrap-up, I'll do this very, very quickly. One of the things um, is that I'd like to, we've been here now for 75 minutes and the word strategy has not appeared. And I think in many ways, that's a real takeaway because this has not been about grand strategy. I think there's tactics going on, there's improvisation, there's experimentation, but the days where there was a chief strategy officer who was making grand strategy, I think, is over. And I think, and, and I think it's that's part of the you know no more world that that many of us will be glad to leave as we move into a world where more people feel they have a stake in the outcome of what their organization does. And I think the fact that so much of what, at least at higher, so much of what's happening now is to create equity ownership amongst the workers in their, the employees in their ecosystems. They get to make the big choices. They get to hire the labor. They get to distribute the the, the value captured. Uh, all of those things are, make big contributions towards human development because every one of those individuals sees themselves, if not a CEO, they see themselves as, as an entrepreneur. And I think that that and and their and their goal is much as it is in many entrepreneurial communities is to move on to a bigger and better uh, new idea. So I, so my sense is that there is a marketization taking place within hire that is replacing the old directed structure, and it serves to revitalize the organization. This is an organization that's um that's that's in what's typically regarded as as old economy industry, and yet. They're constantly mentioned as being one of the most innovative organizations in the in the country, in the world. So, so what we have is a contradiction right there 
And I think the contradiction is served by the um, uh, by the choices that they've made to make people feel like they are really important within the organization, no, ma- no matter what their role is. Um, in many ways, so, so in a sense, in a, we're, we're returning to a pre-industrial revolution system where where people were the owners of the businesses that they worked in, rather than the hired hands who were who showed up when the whistle blew. And 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 you quoted E.O. Wilson in the medieval organizations. Well, we're making progress. We're now at pre-industrial revolution. And and but I think that it's important to keep that sort of ownership and feeling of um, of, of individual fulfillment and power um, in in order to engage the um, the 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 the, the the talent that that you're employing. And I guess my sense is that, not surprisingly, we're moving from the no more to the not yet in fits and spurts. And and sometimes we'll get it right and sometimes we'll get it wrong. And I think what hire has done is to run hundreds, if not thousands of experiments in parallel so that for every, you know, for every six or eight they get wrong, they get a couple right, and the organization learns from that and moves forward a little bit. So for me, if you think about how entrepreneur, how innovation grows on the basis of experimentation and learning, this is a good model to base organizational design on. You know, and nothing lasts forever, but for the moment, I think it'll get us through that chasm between the no more and the and and the not yet. So I, I I hope that holds together as a, a, a summary of what I've heard and what I've thought about just now. Thank you, Bill. That's, that's great. I mean, I'm going to piggyback on this. But before that, Sina, do you want to say something, you know, to add something before I, I wrap up a little bit? Um, yeah, just want to say thank you to, to both of you. It's been a really interesting discussion. And I can I really like this idea of, you know, how, how we can leverage to some extent on diversity within organizations and it seems like uh, with everything that we've talked about is going hopefully in in that direction there will be more opportunities for people to have skin in the game and and actually have some level of influence on on the outcomes that the organizations create as well so so thank you very much and uh, catch up soon uh, thank you, Sina, for your for your uh, quick uh, note and uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I'm gonna thank you uh, also from my point of view. I think uh, if I can stress one point that was emerged during the conversation is that for sure, in the in the no more, uh, there is a strategy. You know, it's uh, with Bill. Sometimes we have been talking about the death of uh, strategy. And I think I can uh, reconnect that to to the idea that as the rules. Uh, or, or changes, no? So uh, the, uh, as the rules, uh, the, the the context of organizing changes so rapidly, uh, this idea of strategy as something you can use to uh, win over competitions, for example, uh, is largely, I would say, uh, um, not you know largely uh, limited tool, uh, you know with respect to what we would need to to face the unanswered questions that. Uh, uh, seem to uh, you know to constitute uh, a base the basis of the uh, not uh, yet you know, the, which is uh, not yet uh, for a reason no because it's full of unanswered questions that we still need to uh, grasp so thank you very much both uh, uh, and uh, 
Uh, that, I know if you want to say hello to our listeners, that that's a good moment. Thank you, thank you, everyone, for listening, and I'll look forward to, as always, continued conversations with the three of you and uh, with our our the people listening and in, interacting with us broadly in boundary in and around uh, boundaryless. So thank you for the invitation. Yeah, and I would like to add that it was a you know, a real enjoyable afternoon, a great pleasure to be part of this. Thank you for including me. Lisa, it was a great pleasure to meet you. And Stina and Simone, thank you again. Thank you both. Thank, thank you all. And uh, catch up soon. Thank you for listening to Boundaryless Conversation Podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media and subscribe to our podcast by looking up for Boundaryless Conversation Podcast on all major podcasting platforms. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for more general research updates, where you can also find opportunities for learning and free tools for you and your team to design platform strategies in these turbulent times. This podcast has been brought to you by our research sponsor, Intesa San Paolo, We want to also thank Walter Mobilio at Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.